But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. And so those who conducted Paul and brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, Athens was culturally the center of the world. I visited Athens a few years ago, actually. It was kind of by fluke. I was going to India, and on my way back from India, I wanted to go to Israel for a few days, and we got into Cairo, Egypt, a little bit late. Our plane had already left from Egypt to go to Israel. I tried to take a bus through the desert. The buses weren't running because of a Muslim holy day, and so the only route to go to Israel was to fly to Greece and then back to Tel Aviv. And so I decided, you know, let's go for it. And so I went through Athens, and I'd always wanted to see Athens, even though I was only there one day. I went up to the Acropolis, saw the Parthenon that no doubt Paul the Apostle saw, and just some of the wonders of the city of Athens. And I was taken in by it. I was a tourist. I uh, It was just soaking up the sights and the sounds of Athens, and I loved it. But the reaction that I had to Athens as a sightseer was far different from the reaction that Paul the Apostle had when he saw it. Now, he wasn't there taking little notes and taking out his camera and taking pictures of things. He was there with a greater, deeper purpose, and he saw so differently from the way many of us see. And uh, the question is, what did Paul see? Well, I can describe a little bit of Athens to you. Uh, it's a modern city now, but what Paul saw when he went there was not only the cultural capital of the world, but it was the philosophy capital of the world. Everywhere in Athens where Paul went, he would see little bands of men and women, especially men in those days, gathering together to speak about the meaning of life. They had a sense of pride in the city of Athens because of the history of the philosophers that came through and influenced that part of the world. Plato, Aristotle, Zeno, and some of the great philosophers that still had their schools in Athens and still have their followers even to this day, though it's couched in kind of different philosophies, they still remain. It was the art center of the world in many regards. The greatest universities that the world had at that time were in Athens. There was a couple other cities that housed them, Rome and Egypt, but one of the premier universities for art, language, oratory was in Athens. It was a religious center of the world. There was the Temple of Zeus. Uh, there was the Parthenon that housed the huge ivory and gold statue to one of the goddesses of the Greek Parthenon and the Pantheon, which you could see 40 miles away. Huge statues. And uh, there were statues all over the city. In fact, it's estimated that there were 25 to 30,000 idols, statues, that were laced through the city of Athens that Paul no doubt saw. As he just cruised down the street, he saw statue after statue after statue. In fact, one of the Roman writers said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Besides the 30,000 statues that dotted the streets and the landscape, if you were to go up to the Acropolis and see the Parthenon, which still stands today, it's an incredible structure. 
there were 25,000 statues, idols, in and around the Parthenon and the Acropolis alone. And these are some of the things that Paul saw as he went into the city. He saw the Agora, the marketplace. In fact, we're going to read about it here in a few moments. The place where the philosophers came together and spoke about the meaning of life. It was a covered area of porticos painted by some of the greatest paintings in the uh, painters in the Greek Empire. And uh, people gathered day after day to speak and to sell their goods and so forth. Now, Athens and Greece was the center of Greek mythology. If you've ever had the chance to read some of the ancient myths, you wonder how people could worship some of the gods and goddesses that Greece produced. I mean, more than being deity-like, the gods and goddesses of ancient Greek Greece were more like immature children. They had jealousy, envy, pride. They chased each other through the universe. The story is told of the jealousies between one god and another god because this goddess loved the other god more than the first. And how that the first god would take the second god and chain him up and tie ropes around him out in the middle of the Aegean Sea for thousands of years. And you wonder, why would somebody worship these stupid things? Usually when you worship something, you want that something or someone to be greater than yourself. And you know, the psalmist was accurate when he described the idolatry in the Old Testament. And he said, the idols of the heathen are vain. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have feet, but they can't walk. Ever seen a statue walk? Ever talked to a statue and had the statue say, Hey, you, come here. Hey, you've been praying to me for a while. Let me tell you. They don't do that. Now, you can speak and you can see and you can hear, and yet to be speaking to something inanimate that can't even perform bodily what you can seems ridiculous. Yet the idolatry of Greece that centered in Athens was just incredible. People did it every day. And Paul went into the city and he saw this. The beauty of Athens was incredible. And yet Paul wasn't struck by the beauty. He wasn't taken in by the Agora with all of its porticos and all of its paintings. He didn't walk down the street and go, wow, look at those statues, ivory, man. You know how much that's worth on the black market? He didn't see the gold. and He saw something entirely different that struck him. We read about it in the next verse, verse 16. After what Paul saw, it tells us how he felt. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. That little word provoked is originally a medical term that speaks of a person who had an epileptic seizure. An epileptic fit. He's moved. It could be translated he was aroused or shaken to anger. He was provoked. He walked through the city and he saw statue after statue, temple after temple, people talking about the meaning of life but never coming to a conclusion. Always wanting to learn and amass knowledge. The universities. These intelligent people walking around but empty. A spiritual hunger. And his spirit was provoked. It bothered him. 
He didn't say, wow, this is awesome. Look at the Agora. Look at the Parthenon. He said, what a shame. Such spiritual hunger and such unfulfillment. How my heart aches, it's provoked. And he was aroused to anger. There is a righteous anger the Bible speaks about. I hope you're aware of that. You know, some people say, it's a sin to get angry. No, it's not. It's a virtue. It just depends what you get angry at. Now, if you get just fly off the handle and you have a bad temper, that's sin. If you hold a grudge against someone and refuse to forgive, that's sin. But you can have righteous anger. You can see something and get angry because of the results that that action produces. You should be able to look around at the world when you read the newspapers and be provoked, roused to righteous anger. Jesus was when he walked into the temple in Jerusalem, twice in his ministry, once at the beginning, once at the end. He didn't say, look at these beautiful buildings of the temple. Now his disciples did, remember? Matthew 24, they walked out of the temple. The disciples said, Jesus, look at these buildings. Look how massive and gorgeous they are. Jesus said, they're all going to fall down. A couple days later, he walked into the temple and he saw the priests who represent the mediatorship between God and man of the Old Testament times selling sacrificial animals for an exorbitant price and Jesus took the tables of the money changers and he overturned them, these huge marble tables in the temple. Then he took out a whip. And he started cleaning house in the temple and driving these religious charlatans out from his father's house. My father's house is a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of thieves. He was provoked. This word and this concept of being roused to anger is found not only here in the New Testament with Jesus and with Paul, but in the Old Testament. And if we had a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint version, the word provoked is translated the same in the Old Testament in a couple of different areas. And it often speaks of God's reaction to idolatry. Just as Paul saw the city given over to idols, he was provoked, he was ticked off in his spirit. It's the same reaction that God in the Old Testament had when he saw the golden calf produced by the children of Israel in the wilderness. And it says that they provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. In fact, in one portion of Scripture in the Old Testament, God said, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God says, I'm jealous because you have another lover. We've made a covenant. We've made a deal. I'm your God. You're my people. You're to serve me. But you've been dating other gods. You've been worshiping at other altars. I'm jealous. I want your affection totally. And God was provoked. It's the same reaction that some of God's servants had in the Old Testament when they saw Israel given over to idolatry. Elijah. After Elijah was on the Mount of Carmel and had a contest with the prophets of Baal called lightning down from heaven, he fled down to the Sinai Desert and he was out there having a little pity party. He was a little bit bummed out and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord my God. He was righteously angry at the sin of his people and it provoked him to anger, to righteous anger, to jealousy. Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians says, 
I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I've espoused you to one, and that is Christ. And I want you to have that simple, intimate love relationship with the Lord. And I see that you're being torn away from that simplicity in Christ. And he said, I'm jealous over you because of that. That was Paul's feeling. He couldn't relax. Now, there was persecution in Thessalonica. There was persecution in Berea. And so he went to Athens, probably to get a little R&R. Text doesn't say that, but I imagine the disciples got together and said, Paul, listen, you've been preaching, you've been on the road, you've been doing sermon after sermon, teaching after teaching, you need a little bit of break. Go to Athens and we'll meet you there. So he probably said, yeah, it's a good idea. And so he went out, either by foot or sea, but he couldn't rest, he couldn't relax. He didn't see Athens as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. He just couldn't see the world the same anymore now that he was a Christian. Now, I'm sure he could enjoy and appreciate the art forms and the architectural forms, the Parthenon. And he probably thought, you know, that's really nice. It's pretty. But it's simply man's testimony to man. But it doesn't glorify God. And the reason he couldn't appreciate the art of Athens is because the art reflected the worship. All of the art was used to carve out idols to worship that stole glory away from God. And so his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was completely given over to idolatry. Idols were throughout the entire city. What is our reaction when we see cities like Hollywood? Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in that area. And I never liked going to Hollywood. That never thrilled me. Let's go to Hollywood. <sighs> It's all plastic. But when I do get the, should I say, opportunity to go to Hollywood, my spirit is just provoked. As I see flagrant sin being paraded around. I spoke to a pastor this last week at a pastor's conference in California who pastors a church in East Hollywood. And he said, skip almost every single Bible study People walk in the door and yell and scream and try to provoke the service and disband the people. They picket my church. Uh, they're trying to drive us out. Flagrant homosexuality. The drug scene. I mean, you could just name it. Hollywood's full of... What's your reaction when you see that? Does your spirit get provoked within you? If Paul was in Hollywood, he wouldn't have you know, seen Grauman's Chinese Theater. He would have just said, oh, this is horrible, despicable. Or Las Vegas. Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was wholly given over to idols. And I guess that could go for any city. I'm not saying that you should go on vacation and just feel bummed out all the time and provoked and never enjoy. I think you ought to enjoy life. And I think you ought to enjoy what God has created, what God has given. But at the same time, there needs to be some kind of an unsettledness that would drive us to share with people who are in that kind of darkness. And the only way for us to preach like Paul preached is to be able to feel like Paul felt. And to be able to feel like Paul felt, we need to see like Paul saw. He saw the world differently. And when he saw in the spiritual realm, the scheme of things, he felt differently about the world. That's why the Bible says he could love his life not unto death. He says, I don't care if I die going to Jerusalem. I know that I'm going to be bound for the gospel's sake, 
But I want to finish my testimony in the race that the Lord has given me to finish. I don't care what people think. I just want to do what pleases God and what's glorifying to His name. That's how he saw life. And because he saw things that way, he was able to feel that way. And because he felt that way, he was able to preach the way he did. I get to go to Europe in a couple of weeks. I'm excited about it. Go to, get to go to Austria and share with uh, uh, some of the Yugoslavian pastors and uh, lay people, some of the young people in, in uh, the college youth groups of Yugoslavia are meeting us in Austria and we get to train them for a couple of weeks. One of the great missionaries to Europe once said that Europe is looked over by millions of people but overlooked by millions of Christians. Europe now is a mission field, a desperate mission field, and the doors are wide open with some of the walls and borders and boundaries that have fallen and the European community now that is taking away its borders between countries. There's opportunities in Europe like never before. So it's time to walk in and seize those opportunities. Verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now I just wanted to get back to this thing about setting up uh, idols and worshiping them. God warned in the Old Testament that the children of Israel were, number one, not to follow after the practices of other nations who worshipped idols. But number two, God says, when you worship me, don't make any graven image, any likeness that you would use in your worship. My background, personally, defies that entire commandment. I was raised in a religious system where I had relics, statues, and reminders of God and of the pantheon of deities in heaven around my house and around my world constantly. And as a child, I would ask my parents, why do we have these statues around? I was curious. as a question any kid would ask. Because, you know, they look like humans, but they're... Plastic or wood? And the answer I got, sincere answer, was to remind us of God, son. It's a visible reminder of God and His care. And I buy that. That's a good idea. It's a good reason. And I live my life based on that. And I prayed to some of them uh, in front of them, uh, dropped coins in in front of them, lit candles in front of them, and so forth. And yet God in His Word says, when you worship me, you're not to make any graven image, any likeness of things in heaven or earth. It's an abomination. I wondered about that Scripture after I came to know Jesus Christ personally as my Lord and Savior. It bothered me because of my background. Why would God say that? The reason God said that, I believe, is first of all because... Any image or statue of God can only diminish from the true character and nature of God. What statue can embody the glory of God adequately? God said, Moses, you can't look at my face. You'll burn up. You'll fry, man. The only way you can get a glimpse of me is I'm passing by, and as I pass by, you'll get a glimpse of the afterglow. That's about it. Otherwise, no man can see my face and live. So any statue would diminish from the glory of God. 
and would set something in our minds other than the transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, holy God. But there's something far more when it comes to setting up images in worship. Anytime someone sets up an image to worship, it designates that that person has lost something. He's lost the intimacy and the awareness of the closeness of God. He needs now to be reminded of it by some visible outward reminder. He doesn't know it. He doesn't experience the fullness of the relationship of God on a daily basis. He needs a reminder. It indicates he's lost something. And so you go through life, you walk through the house, you see an image. Oh, yes, that's right. Worship God. Right. I'm reminded. Hey, if you need a reminder, it designates, it shows that you've fallen away from that place of intimacy. You've perhaps lost or left the first love. It also indicates a person's desire to recapture that which was lost. He longs for God. There is within every single creature a deep longing and desire to worship someone or something. And the setting up of an image is, I've lost something, I want to regain something, I want to recapture something that I've lost. So I need something visibly and outward to remind me of that deity or that thing that I worship. And that's always always a sad day. Okay, what did Paul do? How did Paul respond? Two ways. I love it. He had a strategy. He just didn't sit there and shake his head and go, you know, it's quite a shame. World's filled with idols. 30,000 statues around Athens and 25,000s up there in the uh, Parthenon on the Acropolis. And there's the statue of Athena and there's the statue of Zeus and Jupiter. And it's a shame what this world is doing today. Now, it's one thing to have a negative response toward evil, but it's the second thing to have a constructive and positive reaction to it. Any of us can shake our heads and go, it's a shame, the crime that's going on in the United States. But what are you doing about it? For instance, I hear people say, what about the people who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about the people in the backwoods and jungles of Africa? Is God going to judge them? Is God going to send them to hell? Hey, if you're really concerned about them, go there. That's the answer. If you really do have a heartfelt concern, like you say, you'll pray for them. You'll come to know Jesus Christ and maybe go give them the gospel. But it's one thing just to shake your head and say, oh, I just, I wonder, it's so sad. It's another thing to do something about it. What did Paul do? Well, first of all, he went into the synagogue. He spoke to the Jewish people. No doubt using the Old Testament scriptures proving that Jesus is the Christ, like we found in the first couple verses of chapter 17. As was his custom, it says in verse 2, as he was in Thessalonica, he went in and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So you can picture Paul going over the manuscripts, the text, showing them Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah, Zephaniah, pointing to Jesus Christ as fulfilling the scriptures. Then he went from the religious people to the common passerbys out in the marketplace. For it says, in the marketplace, which is the agora, the central meeting place, daily with those who happened to be there. And certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. 
for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That cracks me up. But first of all, he went to the marketplace after the synagogue. The marketplace, or the agora, was like town square. It was the center of all activity. It was the place of free speech, like if you've been to San Francisco, Hyde Park, or London, and uh, or Pershing Square in Los Angeles. It's places where people meet and, and just freely give speeches and talk things over. The marketplace is where philosophers hung out and got notoriety. Some of them were radical. Some of them were boring and contemplative. Some were eloquent. But the interesting thing about the marketplace, as you read more and more about ancient Greece, is that people exchanged ideas, made observations, but never came to any conclusions, which is kind of a good definition of philosophy. My brother majored in philosophy, and when he came out of college, he was more confused than before he went in. Colleges are good at that sometimes. And verse 21 sounds like a modern talk show. They spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. Ever listen to a talk show? Ever listen to the ideas that are exchanged? It's, to me, mostly babble. It's humorous. It's enjoyable sometimes to listen to different people that are famous exchange things. But rarely, after a talk show, are there radically changed lives. There's really no conclusion because of the existentialism that's portrayed. Whatever you're into, hey, that's good for you. Uh, and you just have music and talk, and then it's over with. Just to hear, talk about some new idea. It sounds like a, it could be a college campus as well. Just kind of exchanging ideas. The Scripture speaks about those who are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What a shame to be so intelligent but never come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus prayed that the disciples would know the truth. He said He dispensed the truth. Jesus said the knowledge of the Father and the Son is the truth. But there are those who are always learning, reading books, exchanging philosophies, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Paul warned Timothy, he said, guard what was committed to you, avoiding profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, there were two groups of people who were exchanging ideas we read about. Two predominant groups, the Epicureans, it says here, and then the Stoics. Let me give you a little bit of background and show you how that the Epicureans and the Stoics have not faded away from history. They're still with us today. The Epicureans were existentialists. They believed that truth was perceived by experience, not logic. That was the teachings of Epicurus that was passed on to his students. They believed in God, sort of. They acknowledged that there could be a God. But if there was a God, he wasn't a personal God, and that God was so far removed that you couldn't know him personally, and he didn't really care. And so they would be like a modern atheist or an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who confesses, there may be a God, but I don't know for sure. I am agnostic, without knowledge. I don't know for certain. 
Uh, the Epicureans believed in chance. There was no scheme of life, no rhyme or reason, no plan, just things happen. And whatever happened, happened. You just kind of go with it. Fortuitous occurrences of accidental circumstance. Things just happen. No real creative force and rhyme or reason to things. It just happened that way. There was no life after death, they believed. And so they concluded, one of their little conclusions, they had one, is that the chief aim of life was pleasure. Just have fun. Man, since there's no life after death, you kick the bucket and you're under the bucket. You might as well just enjoy life and find all of the fun that you can have now. It's the doctrine of materialism or hedonism. People who live just for pleasure. People who live for material goods. Now, I would say if there's one philosophy that characterizes America, it's this one. It's the Epicurean philosophy. Just live for today. Have fun. Amass wealth. The chief aim of life is your pleasure, your satisfaction. Now, that has crept into the church. There are Epicurean tendencies within the church. God is seen as a means of self-gratification. And so you have a lot of Christians running around saying, I didn't get out of it what I wanted out of it. and They don't meet my needs. And people running around looking for self-fulfillment, self-gratification, instead of saying, I belong to God. He's my Creator. He's my Lord. I live in obedience to Him. I live to satisfy Him. It's also come into the church through what I has been called the Faith and Prosperity Movement. I haven't talked about it for a long time. And I think it's important as a shepherd, as a pastor, that I warn you. Especially those of you who are new Christians, you've come to know the Lord, we've heard some of your testimonies. It's so exciting to see what God is doing in your life. But I fear that a lot of you can get ripped off by a doctrine that is going around that's very popular. In fact, it's very unpopular to be me and speak out against it. Books like Laws of Prosperity by Kenneth Copeland that speak about how that God wants you to always have lots of money, always be healthy, never suffer. That's your right as a child of God. And hey, there's hundreds of thousands of Christians buying into this. Of course, there's Robert Tilton on television. And some of you have had the misfortune of running into him. Let me tell you, point blank, he's a scam artist. There's not an ounce of truth in him. IRS is after him. They're catching up with him. He's basically using the gospel for his own benefit. Getting people's focus away from the truth of the gospel away from the love of Christ and coming to Christ through repentance and onto self-gratification. I've got stacks of letters that I get faxed to me and sent to me by people who know that I keep up on these sorts of things. I got them in a, in a big file. I won't tell you what I call my file, but I have it in this file. And from time to time, I'll just kind of peruse through them and see you know, the progression of this man's so-called ministry. Some of the people that are in this movement are well-meaning people who love the Lord. They really love the Lord. They're sincere. And there's some of them who aren't. But there's some of them who are very sincere. They love the Lord. 
And we need to bear with them. We need to pray for them. We need to love them. But we need to speak out as well. The most loving thing you can do is to tell the truth. And, you know, well-meaning or not, I'm not going to keep back the truth from people who can be sucked in by their pernicious doctrines. And it's a doctrine basically of Christian hedonism. I exist for pleasure. God owes health and prosperity to me at all costs. And if I don't have it, it's because the devil has somehow defeated my life and all I have to do is stand by faith and confess it away and I can have wealth and health and happiness. Take that gospel to India and see how far you get. Take that to Southeast Asia, Thailand, the Philippines, Africa, see how far you get. That can only spread in a selfish, materialistic society. Now, if God blesses you, great. I love to see God bless people. When somebody says, hey, look at this, I was just able to buy a new jet. Hey, great. I can't. Glad you can. See, the opposite is you can get jealous of it and you can backbite and so forth, but it's great if God blesses you, but God doesn't owe you a thing. There's one prayer I never pray. God, give me what I deserve. Skip, would you like hell right now? I just say, Lord, like David said, deal with me according to your tender mercies. Not according to my iniquities. And that's how God deals with us. The second group was the Stoics. The Stoics were not agnostic. They were pantheistic. They believed God was in everything and God was everywhere. They had gods here and gods there. They themselves were gods. And uh, they just believed in a pervasive polytheism uh, in their world. They believed in fate. You've heard of the term a stoic kind of a person. This is a person who doesn't have emotion. Now, the Stoics taught that there's fate and that the will of the gods in life governs how you live. So if something happens to you, good or bad, hey, it's just the will of the gods, accept it. The Epicurean said, enjoy life. Stoics said, endure life. They always had a somber face, and they taught that the highest plane in life was to not react emotionally if something happened. In fact, there was written one person whose child died, and the person never shed a tear, just folded his arms and said, well, so be it. That was the highest form of life to the Stoics, just fatalism. That's how they live. And in verse 18 we read, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these people who believed in these two schools of thought, encountered Paul. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. See, that's their mentality. 30,000 statues plus another 25,000 up on the Parthenon. And uh, so what new god is this? It'll be interesting. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They never heard of a, a person who died and got raised up from the dead. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, a place of prestige where the philosophers would gather together overlooking the city, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. And so uh, uh, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, there's something you've got to admire about Paul. He was able to speak to Jews in a synagogue about the Hebrew Scriptures, something that a lot of us wouldn't be able to do. He was able to speak to the casual passerby in the marketplace who had any kind of question, philosophy about life, and he was able to speak on the Areopagus with the elite philosophers of the time. He was just top-notch. He was skilled and sharp in all of those areas. You know, the Bible does say, Paul, in fact, himself writes, You see, brethren, how that there are not many mighty or noble after the flesh who are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Now, there are exceptions to that general rule. It's the common person who followed Jesus gladly. It's not the high intelligentsia, usually. It's not the uh, PhDs, usually, who follow Jesus. In fact, it's the scientific world who scoffs at Christianity, usually. Paul was an exception. He was a brilliant mind and, a, and an astute philosopher. And he was able to share with any kind of uh, people group. Now, there's a few things about his approach that I want to cover. And I may not be able to cover it all tonight. We'll cover it next time. But let me run through Paul's method of preaching with these guys. And I want you to notice something. Not once does Paul use an Old Testament scripture, or any scripture for that matter, in dealing with and to some people, they would say, oh, that's horrible. You just got to quote scriptures and give it out to them because, you know, the word of God will never return voice. So you just slam them with scriptures and walk away. That was not Paul's method. You know why? They didn't know the Old Testament scriptures. They were not Hebrew scholars. It would have done no good. So, number one, Paul began at their level. Paul began where they were. He made an observation. He said, I perceive as I'm walking around the city, you're a bunch, you're religious people. And so he won their attention. He didn't say, you know what? You're a bunch of filthy idol worshipers. That wouldn't have got him very far. He just said, you know, I noticed. I made an observation. There's about 30,000 gods in this city. And another 25,000 there's temples. You're religious. And so he began where they were at. You know that religious people are hard to reach. And in many ways, they're worse off than the person who is an active, blatant, wicked sinner. The active, blatant, wicked sinner knows usually that he's corrupt and he needs help. Or at least he knows he's corrupt and he's a sinner. He would admit it. And it's usually that person who'll say, I'm too bad to be saved. I'm horrible. I'm a wicked person. You wouldn't, wouldn't believe what I've done. God, how could God save me? The religious person, on the other hand, feels he's too good to be saved. He thinks he's got it all together. And I found that religious people are the hardest people to share the gospel with. They're not receptive. I don't need anything. I'm religious. But Paul begins with that. He says, I've noticed that you're religious people. Secondly, he used their culture as a starting point. Look at verse 22. He said, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, verse 23 for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. It's, it's masterful. 
Now consider this. There was actually a statue. In fact, there was a few statues throughout Athens that had the inscription to the unknown God. Now that to me is kind of humorous. They had 30,000 gods, but just in case they missed one, they didn't want to offend him, so they just said, to the unknown God. And that should satisfy or appease whichever deity they haven't been able to find. And Paul thought, this is a great starting point. It's their culture. I'll start right there. And he said, I want to let you know something. The God that to you is unknown, I know him personally. I'm going to declare who that deity that you've worshipped unwittingly for years is all about. The unknown God. And so he says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. He began at their level. He began with their culture as a starting point. And thirdly, he explained clearly and intelligently a message regarding them and the gospel. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. He basically said, God is the creator of heaven and earth, therefore he can't be contained by an altar, a statue, or a temple. God has no needs because he's Lord of all. And thirdly, God has a definite plan that would differ from the Stoics and the Epicureans' philosophy of the gods. God has a definite plan. History is going somewhere. You know, there's something I want to draw your attention to as we draw this to a close. It says in verse 24 that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Folks, God doesn't live in churches only. When I was a little boy, I remember my mother saying, Don't run in the house of God! You mean God lives here? Yeah, this is God's home. Really? Well, where is He? Well, you can't see Him, but He lives here. So I always wondered why every time I went to God's house to visit Him, He was never home. And I discovered the Scripture says that God doesn't live in temples made with hands. He lives in people made by God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives within you. If you go to Israel with us, we will show you some of the holy sites. Now, we won't go to too many of them because it just ruins the trip. You've seen one holy site, you've seen them all. In fact, I was reading today in the Jerusalem Post in Capernaum where they have the ancient synagogue which was built on the synagogue that Jesus was in. It dates back to the second century. Next to it, they have this picture of this octagonal church that overshadows the synagogue, this modern church. At, it's supposed to be built on Peter's house, where St. Peter lived in New Testament times. The only thing, they don't have a shred of archaeological evidence. They just built this church and ruined the city of Capernaum. Nobody knows for sure. People just build holy sites on anything. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. God doesn't live here. And for some reason, we get caught up in the objects of worship rather than the God whom we worship. In the Old Testament, when God said, build an altar, He said, don't make it with human hands, hewn out of 
stone with a tool. Just make it natural. Pile up rocks and dirt and earth and let just let it be unimposing, natural, serve its purpose, be usable, be comfortable, but nothing really ornate. I like that. I like that. When people come to see our church, they go, hmm, a metal building. Interesting. Now, did you design it this way? No, but I couldn't have designed it better. It's simple. It's a big auditorium. It's got seats in it to sit down. We can hear the Word of God comfortably. But God doesn't live here. Only God lives everywhere and God lives within you. And when you leave, God goes with you. One of the things I love about this fellowship is so many of you have learned that when you need ministry, it doesn't have to take place within the four walls of this building. You can find somebody who you know who's a leader of a small home fellowship you go to or another group you go to or a brother in the church or a sister in the church or one of the pastors and you call them and pray together and minister the Word together and that's where ministry takes place. And Paul recognized that. The Athenians didn't recognize that. They were still worshiping these gods and uh, uh, verse 25 says, He is worshipped, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Again, I love that Scripture. When the Athenians would pray to their gods, they would often drop coins at the feet and the pedestal of the statue. The coin was in payment to have their prayers answered. Oh, Zeus, I just pray that you'd help my wife and I get along here. Here's a buck for your time. Answer my prayer. Now, you don't worship God that way. God doesn't need anything. And I personally hate when I hear God portrayed as being needy. When I hear people get on television or on the radio and portray God as, hey, listen, God's broke. (laughs) This ministry won't be able to continue unless you, guilt, 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 get behind us. And if you don't give with your love, faith gift this week, we're going to close our doors. God's broke. Bail him out. Give him a loan. We made it a policy from the beginning that we would set out agape boxes. Though I'm not opposed to taking formal offering, that's just as biblical. But we made it a policy. We'll never beg for money. We'll let the needs known. If there's a financial need that comes, if we're going to buy more land, hey, this is what it's going to cost. This is the need. You pray about it, it's up to you. But we'd never push. We'd never cajole. We'd never use guilt tactics. Because you know what? God made the heaven and the earth. He didn't need anything. And if He wants the ministry to go, when God guides, like my pastor used to tell me, God provides. And I don't like it when God is portrayed the other way. And people give out of guilt instead of, hey, I want to do this as unto the Lord. So Paul said, God didn't need it. I've made this announcement before. I'll make it again. It was interesting. I made it one night. I said, you know, if you have given in the offering tonight, you've given to the church and you felt that you didn't want to give, you felt weird about it, you felt like, boy, I wish I could have bought a new stereo with it, but I'll give it to God. (laughs) And you're remorseful about your giving. CS will refund you. God doesn't need your filthy lucre. And if you do it joyfully as unto the Lord, great. But if you do it out of restraint, hey, we'll give it back to you. 
I actually had a guy ask for it back. <laughs> so we looked through the tithe records and found out how much he tithed over the course of all the time he'd been here. He said, well, you know, I've given more than that in times that I didn't, you know, really write it. Hey, tough, you know, it's not to, you didn't write it down, so we'll give you what's on the books. He gave it back to him. But you know, God doesn't need it. God's bigger than that. God's able to do His work, and God will do His work, whether you're able to logically see it or not. Oh, the funds aren't coming. Hey. And you know, to me, that's the greatest way to run any kind of ministry. Because it's kind of like, it's not only guilt-free, it's a blast. You can sleep at night. If they go, man, if we don't get this offering this Sunday, we won't be able to pay this. Oh, man, I better figure out a way to get people. You just say, Lord, look, it's your ministry. You started it. You maintain it. Go for it. It's your deal. You don't need anything. You don't need me. And it's a freeing way to serve the Lord. When you realize that God needs nothing. But God will allow you to use your resources for His glory. He'll allow you. He lets you in on it. Somebody came up to me, and I appreciate what you were saying, by the way. I'm not mocking this, but before the service and she, uh, we talked, she said, over at the other place, you saved me, and I want to thank you. And I said, well, I appreciate that, but I didn't save you. God saved you. I just happened to be in His way. And really, it's true. Whatever we do for the Lord, it's just because God lets you get in the way. God said, you know, I'll use you. You're there, so I'll use you. <laughs> but you know what? God doesn't need you. The moment you think, God needs me, if, if, if I'm not going to do it, His work, this special work won't go on. Hey, God's able to raise up. Elijah had that. It's called the Elijah Syndrome. God said, Elijah, I've got thousands of people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've got people in the woodwork waiting to be used you don't even know about. So let's not puff ourselves up. Think God needs us or God needs us. God's just gracious. And His work goes on and He lets us be a part of it.